Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of February 22nd, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about SB Nation's piece on football player and rapist Daniel Holtzclaw and whether this long-form catastrophe says anything about the state of long-winded journalism. We'll also discuss the science of fatigue and whether the NBA schedule is wrecking players' bodies. And we'll be joined by ESPN's Bonnie D. Ford, who wrote a story recently on Rio's broken promise to clean up its fetid waters in advance of the 2016 Summer Olympics. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Fetid, it's one of those words where you really got to put it before waters. Well, not if you're using it. Where else? How else would you use fetid? Fetid. A fetid, you can say swamp. You know, Washington's swamp, a fetid swamp. That's water, though. <laughs> there well, is a, yeah. That is yeah. an aqueous situation. Right, water or uh, wet. H2O, you know, maybe you Required? Go. My soup was fetid? <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, after uh, Sarah Palin was picked because she was fetid. A fetid. <laughs> she also was a fetid choice. Yeah, yeah. Once Juno melts, it will be fetid. I think that I like fecundity and fetid. They always remind me of each other, even though they're not the same. Fecund, fetid. Fecundity and fetid. Fecundity oh, yeah. and fetid. All of a sudden, it's a Gilbert and Sullivan <laughs> musical. <laughs> That's uh, the greatest cop show of the 19th century. <laughs> Fecundity and fetid. Fecundity and fetid. I'm just going to say that for the rest oh, of maybe, the show. Maybe it's now a pronunciation guide. Maybe it's Henry Higgins. Fecundity is fetid with the meadow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mike. Oh, he's hey. Host, how you doing? It's he's me. the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist. Totally true. Um, how are you? I'm well. Thank you. You're fecund. Yeah. Let's hope you're not fetid. On our bonus, let's hope he's fetid, but only in the in the right in the way. ED sense. On <laughs> you were hanging out with Michael Strahan. Not you in were fetting Michael Strahan, weren't you? Yes, there was a fetting going on. 
He's the, a, ED, the ED sense is a sense that's often discussed in commercials during golf uh, broadcasts. That's <laughs> right. One um, day, someone's going to actually say, I, I, th- I found out I have erectile function. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's not my uh, fault I have erectile function. On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we will not explore that uh, topic further. Thank you. Um, we will discuss U.S. soccer. The U.S. women's team uh, qualified for the Olympics. We'll talk about the state of that program as well as a bit on the U.S. men. Um, to hear that bonus segment and others like it on our show and other shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangout plus. And if you go to that URL, slate.com slash hangout plus, you can get a free two-week trial of the program. So do it. Do it. Last Wednesday, the website SB Nation published an 11,000-word-plus story titled, Who is Daniel Holtzclaw? The conventional answer to that question is that Holtzclaw is the Oklahoma City police officer who was just sentenced to 263 years in prison for rape and sexual assault. He used his position of power to take advantage of poor black women, many of whom had criminal records. Uh, The SB Nation piece, written by Jeff Arnold, and published in the site's long-form section, provides a different kind of answer to the who is Daniel Holtzclaw question. Arnold focuses on his career as a linebacker at Eastern Michigan University. Uh, He spoke to teammates who say he was a good, non-raping dude. (laughs) Arnold uh, ponders whether Holtzclaw could have done the crime due to roid rage or CTE, or because he was angry or depressed that his football career was over. And he also gives voice to those who say that Holtzclaw didn't do the crime at all. He didn't speak to any of his victims or make any attempt to tell the story from their perspective. So faced with the huge amount of criticism that the story was slanted towards a rapist, which is, um, you know, that's that's fair. fair. That's a, that is a reasonable criticism of the story. SB Nation pulled it down, printed a letter from editorial director Spencer Hall, uh, Spencer, who we've had on the show before to talk about college football. Uh, he wrote in part, the publication of this story represents a complete breakdown of a part of the editorial process at SB Nation. There were objections by senior editorial staff that went unheeded. It was tone deaf and sensitive to the victims of sexual assault and rape and wrongheaded in approach and execution. There is no qualification. It was a complete failure. That statement uh, makes it clear where Spencer Hall stands, but it raised a lot of questions about what was going on behind the scenes. And so far, there haven't been any great answers. SB Nation has uh, suspended its long form section it's doing an investigation, an internal investigation. The editor of that vertical is Glenn Stout, who also edits the annual Best American Sports Writing series. And uh, his job status appears to be in limbo right now. Uh, so, Mike, uh, what did you make of the story? And I guess the bigger question that a lot of people have been asking is, does this say anything bigger about long-form sports journalism or just long-form journalism online? Well, Ben Stein has a documentary called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. It is uh, in favor of intelligent design. It questions evolution. Does that mean documentaries are bad? No, of course it doesn't. This one piece of the form was a miscarriage of journalism, and often there are miscarriages of journalism, and sometimes those are long. In fact, they're probably more often long than in tweet form because the longer you write, the more chance you have of making a mistake. Also, if someone had just tweeted, Daniel Holtzclaw's college teammates said he was a good dude, no one would say, but you didn't, in those 140 characters, ask for his victim's response. Uh, I think that there is a problem with long-form journalism, or in the 
I don't know, overeager embrace of it in that often long is too long. And I'd rather read five good pieces of 600 words than one not so good piece of 3000 words. But it's a kind of morass of a bunch of things. This was bad journalism. The form only has problems when it's not well executed. I do think we uh, over glamorize the form just because it's long doesn't mean it's good so maybe that's a branding problem and i and the one thing you said like we don't know what's going on inside of sb nation this seems to be a a pretty bad journalistic misdeed i don't know how much bigger you want to get with that though so i feel like the thing that was not kind of discussed or represented enough in the conversation about this that i didn't really understand until i read the story was that it was really badly written. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that just to be like an asshole. It's just like an objective fact. And it's not just that it was badly written in the way that a lot of long form stuff is, that it was overwritten, like purple prose and, you know. And the the writer's journey to the truth. Sure. It was like badly written just on like a sentence level. Like it just didn't make any sense. It, It just felt unedited. And so to me, Something like weird happened here, like something really weird. It wasn't just that it was like tonally off and that just the entire concept of the piece was wrongheaded. All that is true, but it just feels to me like something incredibly weird, like a draft got published by accident. This is all just speculation because none of these people are talking, but the people at SB Nation are not idiots. They like don't. They've published like a lot of good journalism before. A lot of the stuff in the long form vertical has been good. This was just so unbelievably bad that I feel like it's not even a good example for looking at what's wrong with long form journalism. It just feels like something weird and unexplained happened here and we don't know the answer yet. What could that be? Someone pushed the button. Someone laid the story out. Someone assembled the photograph. Someone wrote the headlines. Someone wrote a tagline at the bottom of the story for the the author of the piece. So if Spencer is saying there was internal debate and dispute over the the, the piece itself, the question is, how did this thing get published? Um, and I think this might say something about the way that some internet journalism outlets operate. I don't know what that is exactly. What I do know is that... It says something. uh, What I do know is that, you know, look, how did the the whole concept of long form as a thing evolve? It started because internet journalism was perceived as shorter, as more reckless, as written by amateurs, that it was going to destroy journalism as we know it. There would be no opportunity for writers to write longer, more thoughtful, more detailed narratives that, 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 that reflect a long and serious arc of reporting on a story. Um, so it, it got its own name because it was supposed to be different when it wasn't different. It wasn't different than a long feature published in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or any magazine, right? So you now have this thing that is branded as different because of the medium that publishes it, the internet. And what I think you see happening is that there are more places for people to write this kind of stuff. 
with fewer editors who have experience doing it. Glenn Stout obviously is not one of those editors. He's not a young guy. He's been editing the best American sports writing for a long time. So it is it is curious that this thing made it to print, but there's some breakdown in the system that allowed it to get to print. And that might be that there aren't enough checks and balances inside some internet publications, online publications. Well, this is just uh, bad journalism on our part. We have no, we have no fucking idea what's going sure. on here. But I just wanted to read a couple of the passages that made me think that this wasn't just a case of like wrong-headed idea, like somehow gets on the internet. It's like, meanwhile, his wife. Tr- this is talking about Holtzclaw's mother is referred to, and in, in this sentence is uh, Holtzclaw's father's wife. Meanwhile, his wife, troubled by the growing list of criminal complaints against Holdsclaw, became enamored by each news report. That's not what enamored means. I've heard both sides, said waitress and Enid native named Alyssa, whose name is printed on her black We Too t-shirt right above a dinner slogan promoting the garbage omelet, a favorite breakfast menu item. The garbage I mean, sentence? It's just strikes me. It's kind of a garbage omelet of yeah, a sentence. Yeah. As this, this story was bad in every way that a story can possibly be bad. It was badly written. The concept behind it was bad. And oh, oh, the other thing that I thought was like kind of underrated in its horribleness was the writer is like exploring this theory that maybe Holtzclaw either didn't do the crime or maybe there's some mitigating circumstance. And if that's true, that's an awesome story. He found nothing. No evidence. Nothing. It was a complete failure of reporting. He didn't get anyone to talk to him except for the guy's teammates. And it was basically just like a notebook dump of these are like the eight people that talked to me. And here's what they said. Also, the uh, this was <laughs> also, in, also. Yeah, also, 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 this is in Spencer Hall's uh, description of the story where, you know, they deleted it. But to describe it as tone deaf, I think is uh, an insult to people like me who are tone deaf. No, it is way worse than tone deaf. Tone deaf is if we had phrased things in different ways, it would have had a different impact. No, if you had not conceived of this story in the first place, it, it does seem, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that the conversation, the first conversation that didn't take place is, wow, you want to do a story about Daniel Holtzclaw that's kind of pro Holtzclaw? All right, that's a big hurdle. You're going to have to show me that you've got something. So it didn't seem like that was the first conversation to take place. And then, as you say, the execution thereof was bad the whole time. Maybe it's unfair to take down long form as as a form, but I subscribe to everything Stefan was saying. It's weird that, although I understand why it got this branding, first of all, I think that words 5,000 to 5,600 in a piece should be as carefully poured over as words Mm -hmm. 1 to 600 in a piece, and they're often not in long-form journalism. And I just hate having my time wasted. And it seems an excuse. It's like, well, it's not that good, or it would have been good at half the length, but if we slap this title long-form on it, we could get away with more of it not being good. And I totally disagree. Uh, more than disagree with that. I, I am almost repelled by the title long form. If something's good, it's good. You don't have to tell me that it's long form for it to be good. Well, you have to warn me that it's long yeah. because when I would pick up a magazine, I could turn the pages quickly and see that, oh my God, this goes on for a while. I, I think, you know, again, to get back to this idea of what's changed, there were fewer opportunities. There were fewer places for people to publish 
and to write and publish longer stories. It is much easier to do that now. Um, and that means that there are fewer editors who have, as I said, have the experience to do that. But I'm not sure that substantively the idea, I'm not sure, I'm sure that substantively the idea of a long story is not anathema to anything. Josh, you wrote a 17,000 word story for Slate. I wrote a 10,000 word story for Slate last year. I think both of those stories were pretty good. And yes, they were. Fuck yeah. <laughs> and that if you started them, you would probably want to get to the end. Should have put more garbage omelet in my oh, yeah, piece. Seriously, that's my one regret. <laughs> that is my one regret. Glenn Stout in the uh, introduction to the 2015 Best American Sports Writing says... If there is any material difference in this kind of work, it may be that traditional print features and book-length narratives tend to rely on the reader's pre-existing interest in the subject. I don't agree with that at all. I think good writing is good writing. And if I start reading a good story, I want to continue reading it. Like you said, Mike, words 1 to 500 matter. And if something merits that kind of length, it will be clear immediately when you start reading it. It was clear immediately when you started reading it that the concept of this story yeah. was flawed. I will also say that there is a big amount of trust that goes on with the long form and the brand or the writer matters a lot more with the long form because let's say you invest a thousand words and then not even in a Daniel, who is Daniel Holtzclaw, like disaster garbage omelet of a story, but just a boring story that didn't merit it. You've been burned. Your time has been wasted. Mm -hmm. So this is why you go into the New Yorker that means something. This is why when right. Slate publishes a huge piece by Josh, it means something. Well, Greg Hanlon did uh, a piece on Mel Hall, the Yankees outfielder that was edited by Glenn Stout for SB Nation on Mel Hall's record of sexual assault against young women, of rape and sexual assault. It was very sensitively done. It was from mm -hmm. the perspective of the victims. It was well-written. I was just revisiting it last night when I was preparing for this segment, and and... It was nominated for awards, and it was the kind of piece, like a lot of these pieces, and there was conversation about this, it is definitely a phenomenon that journalists will praise a piece without having read it, if like their friends wrote it, or just because it's long. The Mel Hall piece, that was like a story that like, I actually read it from beginning to end, because it was really good. Yeah, I did too. And it was on the same subject, and so again, it just gets back to the mis fundamental mystery here. It's not like these people are morons. It's not like they haven't actually, you know, Jessica Luther wrote a, a piece for Fansided saying that, you know, some of the problem here is like writing about sexual assault from the perspective of the perpetrator and the athlete and having a sports writer do it, somebody who's like ill-equipped. I totally get that. And I think it probably played a part here. And I agree with it in general. But they've published pieces on sexual assault by sports writers edited by the same people that were really amazing pieces of journalism. So that's why I just get back to something really weird happened here and we'll find out what it is at some point. But now at least I can point to like when somebody's like, what does an editor do? Because that's like not really transparent people. I can say like, my job is to not allow something like that to get published on Slate.com. Like, <laughs> or to make sure what stuff. gets That's published. Right. What, what does get published on Slate.com merits that every word merits being read by somebody. Well, that's the kind of thing where if somebody, again, like what Mike said, if somebody comes in with that argument, you're like, wow, that's a pretty high bar. If you like have uh, like evidence that this guy didn't do the crime, that's like a fucking Pulitzer, man, or like whatever mm -hmm. award this would be eligible for. 
But if somebody turned in this draft, or they shouldn't even turn in a draft, this should just be a conversation you're having with the person as they're reporting it or as they're pitching it, because you wouldn't have assigned this story just based on that like premise of like, maybe this guy didn't do it. But this is a conversation where you're like, yeah, you didn't find anything. I'm happy to like help you if you like have so- if if you turned in this first draft, this is just like instant kill, like we're not going any anywhere but, with this. But, but what the proliferation of online sports and other outlets has allowed is the publication of more. Now the filter doesn't exist the way it existed. Yeah, well, maybe. Josh, yeah. are you saying my my pitch to you about how Lenny Dykstra's investment advice actually turned out to have been great? That's you're saying the bar just got higher. Shit. We're we're gonna still we're gonna keep workshopping that. In some sense, that's that's true, but there aren't that many publications that are doing this. I mean, especially with like Granlin not existing anymore. It's not like there's an endless like supply of places that would like pay you to write this piece and maybe pay for your reporting. It's not like people are just like splashing huge amounts of money around. I mean, I think that the places that do exist online and are trying to burnish their reputations as doing good journalism. They're all trying to push stories like this and push them out on social media as like exemplifying how awesome they are. But I don't know. I want to find out what happened is basically (laughs) where I come down here. A couple of weeks ago, ESPN's Tom Haberstroh wrote a piece uncovering the fact that at NBA games, dunks declined by 20% from the first quarter to the fourth. Um, While that could be that players do a better job playing defense in the fourth quarter, they try harder, they're just more into the flow of the game, it's more likely that fatigue is the cause here. As Haberstroh explains, dunks declined by even more, 24%, when teams are playing on zero days rest versus one day rest. Those dunk stats are part of a larger piece that makes the persuasive argument, and I'll quote the headline here, that the NBA schedule is cruel, unrelenting, backbreaking and knee busting. Cruel seems a little maybe a little little far. Yeah. But he What's the average salary is one point four, the word cruel maybe need not apply. Maybe. Fetid. Fecund. Haberstroke quotes the director of sleep medicine at Harvard Medical School who says these guys are so extraordinarily talented and it's a shame that they're being impaired. It'd be like the NBA saying Okay, let's see how they do if we starve the players. Okay, let's see how they do if we make them all drunk before they play. Okay, let's see how, how they'd play if they all had to play with Kobe Bryant. I, I added that last part myself. I did find the piece persuasive. And my question to you guys is the economic imperatives here are so strong with the 82-game schedule, with the TV revenue that that generates and with the gate revenue that it generates for all the teams. At the same time, Adam Silver and the NBA don't want star players to get hurt. And there is good evidence that playing this long schedule and playing all these back-to-back games increases injuries. So is there a way for the NBA to take a big kind of longer view here and say it makes sense to sacrifice this revenue for the health and growth of the game? Let's say it's not just the NBA, first of all. It's the NHL. It's Major League Baseball. It's every sport that has a grueling schedule that involves many back-to-back games over the course of a season. Look at when these schedules were created. Look at when these leagues adopted the sort of modern formats. The NHL 
went to 70 games in 1949, 80 in 1974. They're at 82 now. The NBA, 72 games in 1953, 80 in 1961. They've been at 82 since 1967. Baseball, as a lot of people know, 154. The first time that was, it was in 1892. It fluctuated until 1920. And then it went to 162 in 1961. These are schedules that were created at a time when people didn't know anything, A, about science and the body, and B, when leagues were smaller, travel was was minimal. There were, you know, for, for decades, there were no teams west of Detroit, Chicago. So these are sports that evolved in a, in a sort of in, a, in an era where there was no knowledge about what it meant to be an athlete and to, to, to test your body almost nightly on this kind of a schedule. Well, usually when this is talked about, right, it's like, oh, travel is so much easier because of private jets and um, the teams can afford like the latest in performance technology. But Mike, maybe we've been looking at it wrong and this just isn't a problem that you can buy your way out of well, or science your way out of. Well, there, there are definitely countervailing forces. So on the one hand, you have the more games and transcontinental travel. On the other hand, you do have planes are better than trains and private planes are better than commercial planes. And we, we used to be so stupid and have no health and guys would go out and eat steak and drink scotch and not get sleep. And so now that has stopped. And then just the over... Uh, doling out of stimulants and amphetamines, that seems to not help you long-term. That's an immediate fix. And also, every major league clubhouse I've ever been to, they have a huge snack tray with M&Ms, but also granola. Mm. I think that's a huge innovation. (laughs) Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, as a human being, we say, oh, it all evens out. It certainly does not all even out. But I don't know if I decry it. You certainly begin to understand that the Golden State Warriors are a better team than the Milwaukee Bucks. It's just that they're asked to play so many games that Milwaukee gets lucky by getting them, you know, on the road three, four, five straight in a row. I think what it does is it's another place for the good strategy mind to uh, employ some strategy and deploy some strategy. That's what Popovich... Well, deploy some science, really, yeah, and well, take that's advantage what, of what's a, out there. There's a lot going on. You could, yeah. you could be smart about it, like Mark Cuban says, let's get scientists on it, or you could be Popovich and say, doesn't matter, I'm going to rest my starters, and the science of resting the starters, yeah, let's have Adam Silver maybe get a little upset about it. Turns out that that's the right move in the long run. On an individual level, or within the game, it is kind of fascinating to see how players get pooped, how uh, that comes into play, how certain kinds of, you know, pounding the ball on offense on an NFL team has an effect maybe because of fatigue that we as the uh, as the viewer who our only fatigue is, you know, the nacho buildup over the course of a four hour football game. Uh, sometimes we fail to realize it. It doesn't just make cowards of us all. If we want, it can make geniuses of us all. Well, if we're named Popovich. So let me just lay out a little bit of the data here to make it clear that this isn't just like a uh, total supposition. So Kevin Pelton of ESPN um, did research on the percentage of games missed by NBA All-Stars in various decades. In the 80s, it was 11.4%. Then went up to 13.6% in the 90s, up to 15.9% in the 2000s, and it's at 20% in the 2010s. Um, Haberstroh also cites research by Pelton that players are most likely to tear their ACLs between minutes 33 and 39 of individual games. There's also been research on uh, 
soccer that players both in the pros and in youth soccer are more likely to suffer injuries in the second half than in the first half. And so fatigue is a thing in individual games. We can think about it in that kind of frame. And we can also think about it as a thing that happens when you play a long schedule or when you play back-to-back games or four games in five days. And so I think the Popovich strategy has proven to be the correct one. And as recently as 2012, the commissioner, you know, then David Stern was saying this is, you know, antithetical to the NBA to hold out all your starters from this game. And it's actually like better for the NBA to hold out your starters and have them available for the games that matter. And so I think the thing that's most likely to happen, I don't think that Silver is going to reduce the number of games in the season. I think the Popovich strategy is just going to get expanded and blown out to the point where a guy like LeBron James, instead of playing 82 games or as many as he can play, will play 60 games. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's and, what the greats, and that's what the greats have been doing by not faking injuries, but by really bowing to. Oh, that seems a little hurt. Might as well miss the twenty games fifty through, or games you know thirty through fifty. And I think that's a an, very interesting question without an obvious answer, Stefan. Is it better for the league and for fans to have the eighty-two game season and have the star players sit out, let's say a, a quarter of the games? Quarter? By like, um, and that obviously doesn't guarantee that they wouldn't miss more games due to injury, but just by strategy to sit out, or do you just shorten the season and have the star players, um, you know, not strategically rest or sit out and play 100% of the games, but you just have fewer games you can go to as a fan? In a vacuum, it's probably shorten the season. The reality of not just television, but sponsorship contracts. Um, it you know, forced these leagues to stay where they are. They created these systems three, four, five decades ago, and they are hamstrung by them now. There's really not much you can do to change. You want volume. You want product out there as much as you can. I think a more logical solution and a, and a, and a tenable one for all of these leagues is to expand rosters, to give not only LeBron and Manu Ginobili and star players the opportunity to sit out more frequently, but to give the guys who aren't stars the opportunity to sit out more frequently. And if you expand the end of the bench by two in basketball, by a line in hockey, if you expand the roster in baseball by three or four players, you do give clubs the flexibility to leave players home during a three or four game road trip. That might work in baseball. In basketball, they're not playing the guys at the end of their bench already. Yeah, but those guys would play more. So if you have more flexibility, sure, then you then it just gives people it just forces teams to do that. I mean football too. You want to reduce injuries, have bigger rosters. How about you, how about the the league stocks players in far flung cities where it's hard to travel, <laughs> and they just get assigned to play for the teams that show up in the Northwest or the Southeast? It's like pickup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, That's they're actually the, a genius idea. The permanent the permanent three, and those guys can have maybe five. Maybe they could be a unit for five minutes. We'll throw out. Maybe they'll be. I don't know. Yeah, maybe the fans can vote on them. When you have a really bad idea in sports, throw that out that line. Maybe the fans can vote on them. <laughs> the fans will so, vote on them. Fantasy draft. Also, also, just it's not just the end of the bench doesn't play much in basketball. It's also practice. It's also what they do when on the on the days where they're not playing games. My last two comments, and I won't because you're dem- getting a little I, fatigued. 
I want, yeah, I won't demand that you guys not speak after this, but these are my last two. I think that an underrated reason why leagues don't reduce the number of games, I don't think it's the most important one, but it's because there's decades and decades and decades of history of teams playing 82 games and teams playing 162 games. There being, you know, however long the NHL season is. Nobody knows how long the NHL season is. But we wouldn't be having this, you know, the greatest thing in sports right now. Are the Warriors going to be able to beat the 72 and 10 record if the Warriors' final record was something like 62 and, and 6? So I think that that is an issue for the leagues. Um, right, they, and are, then, they are prisoners of their history. My final thought is it's a problem that the playoffs come at the end of the regular season. I don't – I mean, in European soccer, they play the Champions League during the season, which is weird and is just not going to happen in the U.S. But it is just bad for these leagues that you have the most important games at the end of this, like, relentless – schedule that systematically injures all the players. It's not the best basketball um, or baseball or football at the end of the year. It's not an 82-game season. It's a 110-game season. Yeah. And it's very weird in those two sports, the sports where they play the longest, where it is quite clear that you know, teams who are seeded 8th through 3, maybe, you know, 8th through two in some years just have no chance at a championship so it's a little different in baseball you get in the playoffs you can win so all but four teams we're talking about there's kind of no reason to play all 82 games hard and with the four teams that there is a reason you want to talk about seeding there's no reason to play those 82 games hard either because they're definitely going to make the playoffs and what matters is what happens once you get into the playoffs so how many teams have a reason to play all 82 games hard or however many ill-defined games there are in the nhl not many In 2009, when the International Olympic Committee was deciding where to hold the 2016 Summer Olympics, the Rio de Janeiro Organizing Committee submitted a bid book that included a seven-year commitment to clean up the city's water. As Bonnie D. Ford explains in a story published on ESPN.com last week, the bid language stated that 80% of overall sewage would be collected and treated by 2016, and it pledged the full regeneration of the Rodrigo de Freitas Lagoon, where rowing and sprint canoe and kayak events will be held. Fast forward to February of this year, six months before the games, and none of that has happened. Uh, Brazil also now has the Zika virus to deal with, uh, in addition to the 150,000 gallons of raw sewage per minute that flow into Guanabara Bay, the site of Olympic sailing. Instead of clean water, competitors in Rio will be joined by the fantastically euphemistically named eco-boats, which will be deployed to scoop large hunks of floating trash. Joining us now to talk about the trash and what's been done about it is Bonnie Ford, a senior writer for ESPN.com and ESPN the Magazine, who wrote the story headlined, The Promise Rio Couldn't Keep. Bonnie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And you were down in Rio, and before we get started on the general conversation. I'd like for you to describe for us what the water looks like in these events and what it smells like. I think what struck me most is the contrast between the incredible topographic beauty of the city. I don't know if any of you guys have been down there, but it's unlike any other urban setting really I've ever seen with these uh, irregular, beautiful 
green mountains uh, sloping uh, straight down to the sea, beautiful coastline, just an intricate water system between the, the sea, the lagoons, the canals through the city. And then when you get up close to it, particularly in, in the heart of the city and the beaches I described in the story, Botafogo and Flamengo, these beaches where Rio residents grew up swimming as youngsters uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago are virtually abandoned. And you can go and look on the testing data that the government posts, and it's unsafe for swimming most days of the year. So there's a real disconnect there between the scenery and and what's actually there. Does it smell everywhere in the city? No, it doesn't. Uh, but I did uh, anecdotally smell sewage in some very affluent parts of the city as well as uh, the favelas, the poorer parts of the city. So I've covered, you've covered many more uh, Olympics and international events than I've had. I have, I covered a few, I pay attention. And this is always a narrative, especially when it's not in uh, a European city, a Western European city, or even sometimes when it is. Athens was supposed to be a disaster and Beijing was uh, full of pollution. And there are lines in your story saying this is the worst uh, event, this is the worst venue for, say, Olympic sailing ever. Some place has to be the worst. No one got sick or died in Athens or Beijing. But is this an order, two orders of magnitude worse? I guess I'm saying place it in the continuum of the constant complaint or the constant raising of the flags that this could be a bad venue in terms of pollution. I hear that. And I actually, I want to point out that the person who said that was not me, but it was uh, Axel Grail, who is the eldest brother of Brazil's most prominent sailing family, which includes two Olympic medalists, and a very deliberate and thoughtful guy who's been an environmental official and a politician in the area his whole life. He says it's going to be the worst sailing venue in Olympic history in terms of trash. He doesn't think that sailors are going to fall ill by the dozens because of being splashed in the face by this water. So I think in, in terms of sort of rating the worst, and yes, we hear these what we call sort of privately in the press corps scare stories leading up to the Olympics. It's easy to get numb to them because in the end, things seem to always sort of work. I remember quite well, uh, as you may, that in the months leading up to the Salt Lake City Olympics, it was only a couple months after 9-11, we were all on high alert because of, and rightly so, because of what had just happened security-wise. There's always worries about transit. There's always worries about security, both micro and macro. In this case, uh, the, when you put an Olympics in a less developed country, which I think is overall uh, a very good aim of Olympic organizers. You don't want it to remain an elite club of a few countries in North America and Europe and developed Asia. But let's have some transparency in what is going to happen as a result of the Olympics. Let's not make promises that either the residents of that country or uh, the world at large watching is going to feel let down by. And I think that's what happened in this case. I'm not sure I agree with you, though, uh, on where we should be holding the Olympics. I mean, the IOC is so self-aggrandizing, and it makes such a show of giving the Olympics to places in the hopes or with the promise that it is going to change everyone's life there, that they're going to improve society. 
And they make these bold pronouncements. And then as we get closer to the event, it becomes, oh, well, you know, whatever. Some progress is better than none. And then after the games are over, we kind of forget about it. We forget what Athens is like now and, and, and whether the promise of the Olympics helped push the country into an economic spiral. So I, I'm not sure that the, the benefits exist, particularly when when it comes to these games and and the, the the events that are going to be held on water, we shouldn't be saying, you know, why should sailors and rowers and triathletes and open water swimmers, for God's sake, have to sail and row and swim through shit and through or in water where the, the viral counts are astronomical, as you reported. And the Associated Press did a lot of reporting on this as well, demonstrating just how high these the, the, these counts are. Well, I'm not, I don't know if we are disagreeing. I said that the bid process, which we all know and are finding out more and more every week, every month, every year, how flawed and, and corrupt that process can be, not just in the Olympic realm, but in the World Cup realm, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. I think that with proper political will and a stable economy, and, and, and uh, there could have been a greater improvement. They might have gotten closer to their goal of cleaning water in Brazil. I, I did note with interest that after my colleague Tom Ferry uh, did an interview with an IOC official, Christophe Duby, that uh, he said that the, in the future the IOC might hire consultants to see if they these things that were being promised by the host country could actually be accomplished. Well, if the IOC learned a lesson, quote-unquote, from what has been going on in Brazil for the last seven years, then why in the heck did they award the Winter Games to Beijing in 2022 when the air pollution uh, in Beijing in 2008 obviously was a huge issue? They had to basically force cars off the streets and close factories, and now um, the air pollution is worse than ever. So... I do not mean to imply that I have a lot of faith in this. I just think that the it, it is a an idealistic goal to put the Olympics around the world. I'm one who would rather see them placed in maybe you know three or four rotating sites and sort of dispense with this whole uh, notion that we can reinvent the wheel everywhere we put the Olympics. My colleague, June Thomas, I don't remember if this was something that she wrote or just something that we talked about, but around Beijing and the human rights issues there, the point that she made was, well, at least now the world is paying attention and cares about this. And I think that you could make the same argument around Brazil. And this would not be a story that ESPN or the Associated Press would invest a lot of resources in if the Olympics weren't coming to town. And it would still be just as horrible for the people that live there and probably actually worse because they're making an effort. And, you know, who really cares if it's just to like maybe we maybe we should care. I I shouldn't just stipulate that. But if it's just to make it look pretty for the Olympics, but it actually has a lasting effect on the quality of people's lives there, then that can't be a bad thing. Right. No, it's not. And I, I think we have to give credit where credit is due. I just, I'm a little bit uncomfortable discussing percentages of overall sewage collected and so forth. We did do some exploring of that. My colleagues uh, uh, on the OTL TV side 
went into a sanitation plant um, in a favela where they had to have a military escort. But the fact is, we don't know. We haven't gone and inspected the whole system there to know really and truly how much sewage is being collected. The government claims it's gone from 11% to 50%, but as you're saying, there's no way to verify that. Exactly. And then there's treatment and treatment. There's diverting uh, raw sewage away from uh, areas where the Olympic athletes are going to be. But is that sewage really being treated? Is it being treated in a primary way, a secondary way? I have sort of an honorary degree now in municipal sanitation, having read so much stuff about this. Uh, But so, and I do also, as long as we're talking about that, I want to make a distinction between the three Olympic water venues. Copacabana Beach, where the open water swimmers and triathletes will swim, is on most days within acceptable levels of contamination. The lagoon uh, where rowing and sprint kayak is going to be, which is contained and uh, has a canal that leads to the ocean, spikes on different days and is really from one day to the next can go from clean to dirty. Guanabara Bay, uh, you know, there's sewage flowing in from the less uh, prosperous communities up high in the bay. There's lots and lots of trash. And that on any given day, even as the AP uh, series showed, there can be contamination way out offshore where the sailors are competing. How does that translate to illness? We really, we don't know and we won't know until uh, everybody's gone through and, and competed. There haven't been a whole lot of cases reported. Those that have been reported, as I mentioned in the story, it's very, very hard to forensically determine where those cases came from. Did they come from the water? Did they come from something somebody touched? Did they come from something they ate? So uh, a survey of the athletes, of course, hundreds of athletes, hundreds of opinions. There are some who stand out, like the um, Dutch windsurfer Dorian van Rieselberger. Am I getting that right? You are. All right. There you go. Nailed it. Of course, the Dutch windsurfer is going to be on the cutting edge of this, and he's very upset, and he works with something called the Plastic Soup Foundation. Plastic soup equals poisonous soup. Anyway, most of the athletes... They, they are athletes. They're not environmentalists. I guess they have to trust that their countries, their, their federations won't expose them to something really dangerous. But if the athletes are blasé about this, as we understand why athletes must, will anything really change? And let me jump in there, Bonnie, before you answer and say I loved the, the quote you got from U.S. long-distance swimmer Chip Peterson, who said, a little bit of diarrhea is worth a gold medal is something that I've heard from athletes out there. And I think that does encapsulate how the athlete approaches this. That, that was, uh, yes, and, and Chip, of all people, who uh, developed a chronic illness after swimming in Rio uh, eight or nine years ago, can't prove that it came from the water, but I, you know, I consider him to be a, a really solid and, and reasonable voice on this. The athletes that I've spoken to, I don't want to make it sound, and, and they shouldn't be cast as callous and uncaring. What is true of elite athletes, as you guys know, is that they have to compartmentalize. If they're dwelling on microbes and bacteria and, oh, my God, I might get sick, you know, they're, they need to focus everything on competition. So... It's just, you know, pro forma for them to hand this issue over to their coaches and their federations and say, please deal with this. Tell me what I should do to give myself the best chance to stay healthy. And 
the brighter and more socially conscious uh, athletes that I spoke to are also feel a little humbled by the situation that, hey, you know, I'm jetting in here for a few days. I might get sick, but then I'm going home and everybody in Rio has to live with this. And they don't, I think they don't want to sound entitled. They don't want to sound elitist. And I sort of cast it in my story as anticipatory survivor's guilt that I can go in and out and uh, leave this situation behind. So, Bonnie, one of the comments that I've read about this, and if this is true, then I think you could really criticize the IOC and the Brazil Organizing Committee, is that they could have chosen other venues that were less polluted than the ones that they chose, but these ones are like more scenic and will look good on TV. So is that, in fact, true? Could all these events have been in different places where there would have been less risk for the athletes? The answer is yes, but they would have had to have been at a remove from Rio, and that has a lot of implications. Certainly, it has implications for the television broadcast, and you have to remember that these sports, which we only pay attention to once every four years, they want their moment. Uh, You know, the 10K swim, for example, I think about 10 minutes of the two-hour race is shown on television. So having it with that beautiful backdrop, I think, does play into broadcast concerns. But it also plays into those athletes uh, wanting to be part of the Olympic hub, not wanting to be two or three hours away. The sailors in particular that we spoke to, we talked to a lot, a lot more than are quoted in the story, all said, we love this as a venue. It's beautiful. It's different. The topography is amazing. The currents and the wind are challenging. And yeah, there's trash in the water, and we don't like that. But we don't want it moved two hours up the coast. That was a pretty consistent comment. Bonnie, can you tell us finally what the real risks are here? I know there's been some dispute about what should be measured whether they should be testing for bacteria versus testing for viruses. The World Health Organization has been kind of wishy-washy about what's uh, imperative to test for. What are the real risks for the athletes that are going to be participating? It's so variable. It really, if if the three or four of us got into the water and uh, swam 10K, which I personally am not capable of, um, there's no telling... uh, you know, what our, how our genetic uh, makeup and our immune systems and previous exposures can play into it. Uh, it's, it's very, very hard to calculate. Experts can take raw data and plug it into these models and say, we think 6% or 7% of athletes would be subject to GI distress or skin rashes. Those are the two main risks for athletes. And Clearly, either one of those could be an impediment to competing, to doing their best. But there is a legitimate disagreement between experts about how useful it is to measure for viruses, the reason being that we don't have a lot of baseline data, and also that there is not nearly as much research about how viruses are transmitted through water as opposed to bacteria. So good old E. coli is our standard. That's what they test for. It's kind of an indicator of overall contamination in the water, but it's a, it's a very basic one. And they've decided to stick to that, and, uh, you know, we'll see. I think the chances of competitions being called off, uh, particularly in the lagoon because of contamination, that possibility is there. 
I would be surprised. I think that would be uh, a very, very extreme move uh, taken only if they were absolutely convinced that something terrible was going to happen um, if people got splashed by that water. And I just wanted to report that the latest metal projections have the U.S. first, China second, Brazil third, and E. coli fourth. So I just wanted to get that out. It's a very small metal mm-hmm. yeah. they give to the E. coli yeah. And that metal will be eaten through by the end of the games. <laughs> Thanks, Bonnie. And I, it's implicit in our selection of uh, the story and our choice to have you on the show. But I just think it's worth making explicit that this is an example of fantastic long-form journalism. You went down there. You did the work. You reported this out. You had it was a good narrative. The production on the story was great. Pictures, um, the pictures, it, the, the, the pictures all that were garbage. Good, but <laughs> you actually like talked to people and like found out new information. Um, and also, the thing that I really appreciated the most is how careful you were about not making this a scare story. About how honest the piece was. About how we really don't know how sick people are going to get. And it wasn't just like you didn't just throw up your hands. You like went through all of the different like discussions between scientists and the debate about what could be going on here. But you didn't come down with an answer that you didn't have enough information to support. So great all around. Everyone should read the piece. Great mm-hmm. job, Bonnie. Oh, thanks so much. I do. Um, I feel for the people that are living with this situation far more than I do for any of us who are going to be down there for three weeks. And, uh, you know, cross fingers that things will go well enough uh, for the games, for the athletes who are, only have these chances every four years. And cross fingers that the authorities down there continue to clean up as they say they will. Bonnie Ford is a senior writer for ESPN.com and ESPN the Magazine. Her story is headlined, The Promise Rio Couldn't Keep. Thanks, Bonnie. Thank you. All right, now it is time for After Balls. And we don't talk enough about all the water in Brazil that isn't full of uh, feces and sofas. There are several venues in Rio for the mm-hmm. 2016 Summer Olympics that um, are aquatic and have nice, clean water. The one that I want to talk about is the Maria Link Aquatic Center. It'll host the synchronized swimming and diving competitions. It would be more entertaining if you had to synchronize your movements with the sofa. But Can you use the sofa as a prop? That would be a great form of uh, political protest slash just using furniture. Well, they're more protected because the synchronized swimmers wear those nose clips. It's very true. So who is Maria Link? You are probably not wondering. She was the first Brazilian and South American woman to participate in the Summer Olympics. That was in 1932. She was also, uh, I think more interestingly, the first uh, woman to swim the butterfly in an official competition. She actually swam it in a breaststroke competition. The butterfly is faster than the breaststroke, I guess, because you're like uh, swinging your arms more wildly. Yeah. So, uh, kind of cheating, no? To swim the, br- the butterfly in a breaststroke look, competition? All Maria Link does is win, baby, and not swim in disgusting water. So, kudos to Maria Link for swimming the butterfly in 1936. Mike, what is your Maria Link? Let's turn to presidential politics and sports. All right, let's go through all the remaining candidates. Actually, I don't have much on um, Ben Carson. 
except this. I think he's going to get out soon. So maybe by the time you hear this after ball, it won't matter. Hillary Clinton famously wore a Cubs hat and then a Yankees hat and was accused of being a carpet beggar. I think it's safe to say that Hillary Clinton doesn't naturally love sports like her husband does, but who cares? Bernie Sanders has a rich sports history where he always claimed he was an excellent cross-country runner, and he always claimed that his uh, his team when he was a student won a city championship no not his high school team not his junior high school team his elementary school team so i looked into this excited to have my son play for a citywide elementary school championship this has gone out of favor but apparently at one time there was an elementary school championship and i don't think it was the year bernie played but his school in fact did win his school in brooklyn an elementary school new york new york city elementary school championship we now go to Donald Trump, Washington Generals, need I say more? We now go to Marco Rubio, who's the biggest sports fan. The guy talks about the Dolphins incessantly, and do you guys know about his wife, right? The cheerleader. Yeah, former Dolphins cheerleader. But I've just been stymied trying to, oh yeah, and let's also, at this point, well, let's also say Trump had the endorsement of uh, Mike Tyson, who cut those commercials, saying, thanks, Mr. Trump, because he set up a fight with, uh, I think it was Leon Spinks. Let's also... I know he's gone, but Chris Christie was endorsed for governor by Shaquille O'Neal. But let's now go to the mystery that is Ted Cruz. Oh, oh, before that, before that, I want to go to Jeb Bush. And the salient fact with Jeb Bush is that, did you know that New York Jets owner Woody Johnson, his money is now in play. He was such a big Jeb Bush backer that he campaigned for Jeb Bush, knocking on doors in Iowa, asking people to vote for Jeb Bush. This was also apparently how the Jets tried to get many free agent signings. It doesn't work. Woody Johnson knocks on the door and people wind up in fifth or sixth place. Can I interrupt for a second? Did you see the interview that Woody Johnson did after the season where he referred to the Jets quarterback as Geno, the one who was starting? Is it... Is it possible that Woody Johnson thought that he was supporting Marco Rubio the whole time? Yeah, or is it possible that he just has a predilection for players, for for men who are buried way down on the depth chart? We don't know. But what we really don't know is Ted Cruz, who doesn't seem to me the most genuine guy. Now, he's a Texan, so as such, he has to pretend, at least, to be a fan of the Texas Longhorns. And one time in Sioux City, Ted Cruz said that the Longhorns looked like a girls' junior high school team when they got trounced by Iowa State. I don't know. There aren't too many girls' junior high school football teams Does Ted Cruz know that? It's largely unclear. So I think that Ted Cruz has long odds. Americans love their sports, and they love their sports to be wedded to their political candidates, especially on the Republican side. And until Ted Cruz gets a little more sportsy, he's got the princess bride thing down. But until he gets a little more sportsy, I don't think Ted Cruz has, as the old saying goes, as much chance as a New York Jets owner knocking on doors in Davenport. Uh, Stefan, what is your Maria link? Well, if you haven't already, Josh, you will soon be hearing about the English seaside town of Grimsby and its football team, Grimsby Town FC. And that's because Sasha Baron Cohen stars in a new movie, which is titled Grimsby in the UK, where it opens this week. It opens in the US next month with the title The Brothers Grimsby, presumably because no one in America has heard of Grimsby. Cohen has started making the rounds, though, here already on Jimmy Kimmel a couple of weeks ago. He showed a clip, but only to the studio audience in which Cohen's character and his brother apparently hide inside an elephant's vagina. 
Cohen plays a doofus Grimsby Town fan named Nobby. The film is a buddy action movie spoof in which Nobby reunites with his brother, who is a black ops spy from whom he was separated in childhood during an adoption. Together, they embark on a mission to save the world or something. The movie has been causing quite the stir since Cohen was spotted doing research at a match at Blundell Park, Grimsby Town's home grounds in the fall of 2013. Grimbarians are not amused that Cohen is taking the piss out of their beloved town and their beloved football side. Dave Roberts, secretary of the team's fan club, the Mariners Trust, told the Grimsby Telegraph that he's not going to see the film because he thinks it might portray Grimsby FC fans as hooligans. At Blundell Park, we have had the odd incident of trouble, he said, and most people remember the away game at Burton, which comes back to haunt us. Very kind of Roberts to point the Grimsby (laughs) Telegraph readers like me to that 2010 incident in which a mob of Grimsby Town fans invaded the pitch at Burton Albion. According to police, the Grimsby fans were like a pack of dogs and kicked, punched, and assaulted police officers and threw missiles, including on-field advertising signboards. Roberts, the fan club secretary, said that was an exception. Quote, there are more and more young people coming to the games and a lot more ladies, too, which is good. We are a proper family football club. The sensitivity is understandable. Grimsby lies on the North Sea coast. It is south of Withersnee, north of Skegness, (laughs) east of Scunthorpe, and even more east of Doncaster, whose women's football team I afterballed about not long ago. Grimsby in post-industrial decline since the Cod Wars of the 1970s, racked now by drugs and crime, apparently lives up to its name. As Davy Brett wrote on Vice last year after his hometown was named the worst place in Britain to be a man, Grimsby is the sort of place where you'll leave the train station and be instantly confronted by a flock of pigeons pecking away at dog shit. But Grimsby has its Mariners. Founded in 1878, Grimsby Town FC is one of a handful of clubs to play in all of the top five levels of English football. Unfortunately, it is currently in the fifth level. It was that defeat to Burton Albion that relegated the Mariners from the full-time professional ranks for the first time in 117 years. The team currently sits third in what's called the National League behind Cheltenham and Forest Green, though well ahead, I must say, of Woking, Aldershot, Boreham Wood, and Kidderminster. Grimsby Town's mascot is Mighty Mariner, who, according to Wikipedia, quote, normally parades in front of the pontoon stand as well as tormenting the opposition's fans. The wiki also boasts that the team's famous fans include Adam Richman, who I'm told hosted a Travel Channel food show that was canceled after Richman went on a really insane, expletive-filled Instagram rant. Not sure I'd brag about that dude being one of your supporters. One of Grimsby Town's chants is this, we piss on your fish. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. If you know the tune, please contact us at hangup at slate.com. It's not clear how much of the team or the town is in Cohen's new movie. But it's enough to make the locals understandably skittish. Grimbarians are not pleased, as the Sunday Times reported, that the film hired a half dozen women weighing more than 20 stone each to play fans of the team, or that there might be scenes involving drunken prostitutes, someone peeing out of a window, and a woman offering a can of beer to a child. Oh, and there's a scene in which cocaine is snorted through a vuvuzela. (laughs) That's kind of pretty funny. As one resident told the Grimsby Telegraph, I think we've had enough bad press at the moment, what with the town being voted the worst place to live. It is not known whether one of the great moments in Grimsby Town football club history made the film. That would be in 1976 when then-England Foreign Secretary Anthony Crosland took visiting U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger to Blundell Park to watch Grimsby Town lose to Gillingham 
I could see an entire movie based around that day. Josh, what's your Maria link? So on Friday morning, I got an email in my spam folder. That's always a promising start with the subject line about your family tree. You check your spam folder. I do every day. The message read, dear friend, I know that you will be very surprised reading this message because you will hardly understand the true meaning of this communication until you respond for details. Looking at my status as the former FIFA president, I believe you will be wondering what we have to discuss. Maybe you are not a player, but a football fan. Our discussion is personal, which is very far from football, and I humbly employ you to keep my message privately to yourself alone. I look forward towards receiving your reply urgently to my personal. Signed, Joseph Sepp Blatter, 8th President of FIFA, Visp Valet, Switzerland. So intrigued by this, but not wanting to participate as Josh Levine, I set up a free email account so we could continue the conversation. I wrote back from uh, my new email address, which was clintdempsey8 at gmx.com. <laughs> Dear Mr. Blatter, I was surprised to hear from you, given that you are the former FIFA president. What have you been doing lately? Has the international investigation of FIFA been a difficult ordeal for you? Please let me know what sort of personal discussion you would like to have that is very far from football, though I think we both know that discussions that are far from football are never really far from football, if you know what I mean. Yours very truly, Clint Dempsey. He wrote back, hello, Clint Dempsey. Thank you so much for your wonderful, impressive reply. I don't know how often you read sports news because I faced challenges from competitors that wanted to replace me as FIFA president. I did everything possible to ensure that illegality is not discovered in my career. Yeah, good, good effort. And was totally free from all accusation. Hence, I need you to clear a fixed deposit, which I made in the name of a deceased footballer. I will present you as a relative to the deceased footballer so that you will receive the fund without hitches. The total amount involved is 18,500,000 euro, and you'll have the privilege to own domiciliary account at the operative bank fixed management. It goes on for a while with more of this sort of stuff. Um, once to resolve within 48 hours, once my direct phone number, my private email, the above needful inf information will make this transaction a success. Immediately claim affidavit is issued to you from the Ministry of Justice. Mm -hmm. Signed, Joseph Setblatter, 8th President of FIFA, Visp Valley, Switzerland. Hello, Setblatter, and thank you very much for your reply. I'm happy to send all of the information you require, but first I need to ask a few questions to confirm that you are who you say you are. This is obviously just a formality, but I'm sure you can understand the need for forbearance in these important matters. Forbearance, excellent word to use <laughs> in one of these email chains. Once I receive a satisfactory reply, I will send you whatever you require. Okay, so I sent the questions and Sepp wrote back and answered them. So I will read my questions and then Sepp will read the answer. Well, let me just do the first one myself. So I said, can you send us a current photo of yourself so I can be sure you are really Sepp Blatter? He responded, see attachment. There were many photos <laughs> attached of Sepp Blatter. All right, number two. Do you have a recommendation for a hotel where I can stay in Zurich? I hear the bar Olak is very nice. Uh, Renaissance Zurich Tower Hotel, a Marriott luxury and lifestyle hotel. Who do you support in the upcoming FIFA presidential election? The Football Association has agreed to support Gianni Infantino's bid to replace me as FIFA president after reaching consensus at a board meeting on Wednesday, three days ago, I will always support Gianni Infantino 
since the Football Association has agreed to support him. Who do you support in the U.S. presidential election? What do you make of this Trump guy? The real estate developer Donald Trump's speech announcing he is running for the Republican nomination for president contained a number of false and misleading statements. I think people should be considering other Republican candidates like Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Marco Rubio. Sepplatter declines to endorse, says he is leaning towards Cruz or Rubio. Who is a better player, Messi or Ronaldo? Messi is the world's most outstanding player that this generation will hardly find someone to replace. Is Joe Flacco an elite quarterback? I think Joe Flacco is actually a very elite quarterback. He won a Super Bowl. He did it really to a certain extent. A certain extent. I, I, you can't argue with that. Did you accept any money in exchange for selecting the host country for the 2018 and 2022 World Cups? No. And finally, what happened to Brazil in that game against Germany? That was crazy. Oh, yes, it was crazy. And Brazil will continue to lose to Germany because their teamwork is currently 42% instead of their normal 85 to 89% teamwork. That was kind of a weird answer. I, I appreciate the precision, though. Um, so he ended with, I look forward to your, your humane reply with the complete required details so that we can handle this transaction swiftly. Um, that conversation actually went on for longer. I might, it's still ongoing, but I think I'll stop here. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can do a little sequel next week. I'm trying to get Sepp Blatter on Skype. So um, hopefully I will have that for you next week. <laughs> Um, I was sharing this with uh, Dan Ingber, our uh, our friend. He was like, I really like this Sepp Blatter. Like this Sepp version Blatter of Sepp Blatter yeah. is extremely, he's kind. He's a he little wants, more modest, you know, or Marriott rather than the Bar Olak. There's something to be said for Nigerian spammer Sepp Blatter. I think mm-hmm. he's my leading candidate for the FIFA presidency. Likes the NFL. Flacco fan. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.